Here we are now, with episode number six of our series, You Are the Chosen One. You are the Chosen One. I'm going to keep telling you that until you believe it. And we'll talk more about why you are the Chosen One as the series goes on. But there's one thing, I need to mention something actually, which is something that came up last episode. So last episode we were talking about, well, we're in the middle of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. And one of the things that came up was this Miranda's map, Miranda's map, which is the magic map which shows you where everyone is and you can sit and watch people. And I sort of went off into a rant about Well, I don't know if it was a rant. It was more of a babble, maybe. Well, I was talking about the surveillance state and the data collection that big tech companies do on us. And I ended up saying, well, I wish I knew more about this and there's so much more to know. But there's one thing I forgot. There's one thing I need to add to that. And there's one very simple solution. And it doesn't matter how much you know It doesn't matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter how you feel about it, really. There is a bulletproof solution to the problem of surveillance. And it's this. Turn it off. Simply turn it off. And I don't mean just log out of your social media accounts. I mean, actually put your technology devices down. Put your phone down. Go out without your phone. Turn your laptop off. Turn your phone off. Turn it completely off. Just have some time without it. And if you're meditating, and you've got a meditative practice then you should already be limiting your use of technology. So I thought I'd add that on as an afterthought, and I hope I don't make too much of a habit of afterthoughts, especially for something that's actually quite important. So to get into more of this story... I'd like to draw your attention to, to, to get more out of this, the, 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 particularly the ending of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, there's something that I'd like to draw your attention to. Well, there's, there's, there's really two things. There are two things that I'd like to remind you of if, you've already, if you're already hip to them, if you're already cool to it. And one of those is the filmmaker... Quentin Tarantino. And he is a American filmmaker. Very famous. Very successful. And he really is someone who makes cool films. I really like his films. And they are so unique. They really are 
super duper top notch in the way that they look, in the feel, in the characters, in the scripts, in the dialogue, in the story. The whole thing is so unique. And probably his most famous film is Pulp Fiction. Now, he had one before that, Reservoir Dogs. And that was sort of an independent, up-and-coming sort of film. But it was so big, it was such a big hit, and it was so unique that he was then able to launch into a fully-fledged director's career as a filmmaker. And the one he made after Reservoir Dogs was Pulp Fiction. And that is something that really is a piece of film history right there. And everyone should see it because it's the... It's a staple work in postmodernism, and it's the really clear, as clear as it can be, well, it's a really clear example of a plot that unfolds in a non-sequential order. So you have the beginning at the end, and the end is at the beginning, and there's all these chops and changes, and you sort of have to watch it a couple of times, and you sort of... The first time you watch it, you get to the end thinking, oh, oh, I, do I get it? I don't know if I get it, but it's real. I don't, I, I'm, I'm a bit confused. It's, it's really confusing, but, but, but it's really cool. I really like it. I'm definitely going to watch it again. I'm going to watch it a couple of times until I figure out what's happening. And a similar sort of thing happens at the end of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. And Quentin Tarantino, wait, I mean, he's got so many different films. And, I mean, I don't know. I mean, some people say they're not all good and they are quite violent. So if you like Harry Potter, <laughs> chances are the, the the Harry Potter films as a, as a comparison to Quentin Tarantino films, <laughs> there's no comparison. There is no comparison at all. <laughs> and, and well, that actually points something out because the Quentin Tarantino films are stories written for the film, whereas Harry Potter as films is actually a novel series. And adapting a novel series to the film medium is very different to just going into film straight up with the story. And there's one film which actually we can make a bit of a comparison with The Prisoner of Azkaban, and that is The Hateful Eight. So this is Quentin Tarantino's, I think it was his eighth film, actually. And there was sort of a funny thing there about how his eighth film was called The Hateful Eight. I think, I'm not sure, but it doesn't matter for what we're talking about. Now, the story of The Hateful Eight is that they're is a bounty hunter who has their prisoner and he turns up at an inn and there's a big snow blizzard on so he can't travel across the land with his prisoner to collect his bounty because this person that he's got as prisoner is a wanted person. There's a bounty on their head. There's a price on their head. And so the majority of the movie, basically all the movie, is the dynamics of this bounty hunter stuck indoors in this one room with all these other people. 
And it's quite a plot. It's quite a story that unfolds. Because, well, actually it turns out that there are people in the room that know this prisoner personally. And their plan was to conspire against this bounty hunter and to ambush him. And it slowly comes out as there's different dynamics between who is who and who believes what and what are you here for and the defense of the bounty hunter because he's, he's walking around with a gun. He's holding a gun. And then when he, when he walks in, he says, now, who are you? I need to know everyone because I'm not spending a few nights here without knowing anyone. And I'm making my intentions clear, which is I'm taking this prisoner to be hanged. They're going to be killed and I'm going to collect the bounty. And one of the people in the inn is even saying, well, why don't you just kill her? Just kill her and then take her and collect your bounty. It would be much easier. I'm also a bounty hunter. And he says, no, on principle, I want to see her hang. That's not my style. And there's sabotage because someone poisons the coffee cup. Someone poisons the coffee. And now the bounty hunter's thinking, who is out to get me? What's going on? There's something afoot in this room. And the plot unfolds and they've got guns and they shoot each other and all the different dynamics between the characters comes out. And that's the story. That's basically the story. And it is actually similar to Reservoir Dogs in that you have a single set and what is what comes out in that set is more about the relationship between the characters and the information of the characters. And this is quintessential drama. It's just, it's, uh, I want to say typical, but it's not typical. It's, it's good drama. Good drama has a, a few things. And one of them is characters with different or conflicting desires. They're going to a different place. They're getting their, what do we say, their journey or the thing they're working towards is at contradiction to what someone else is working towards. So in the case of the Hateful Eight, this bounty hunter wants to take this prisoner to the bounty to collect the bounty and the people in the inn want to kill the bounty hunter and rescue their friend. So that's a contradicting contradicting what do we say direction arc of the characters and then the other big component of this is the truth comes out so at first the truth isn't clear what people really want isn't clear it's hidden and characters are hiding things because they think that's the best way to get what they want They're telling a different story. Someone's lying. Someone's making something up. And so the whole drama is, how do these characters get to what they want? How does the truth come out? And we watch along and see, well, there's a contradiction there, and that is a lie, and what is the truth? And, oh, actually, this character does want this. And we see this in Harry Potter and... The Prisoner of Azkaban.
And I really like the movies Kill Bill. <laughs> Kill Bill Volume 1, Volume 2. They really were some of his best movies by Quentin Tarantino. And very violent. Most, I think almost all Quentin Tarantino movies are rated R. Which is the, the highest rating that a movie can get for violence. So for blood and guts. They are very violent. So chances are if you're <laughs> if you're a Harry Potter fan and you're listening along to this thinking, oh, isn't the aren't the Harry Potter movies great? Well, just wait till you get a little bit older, kid. Go and see some Quentin Tarantino movies. That'll knock your socks off. Woof. Seeing Uma Thurman, what does she do? She slices some heads off, slices some limbs off. 50 different people in the space of eight minutes. (laughs) Now that's something you don't see outside of the big screen. (laughs) So we could probably even do some cultural and psychological analysis on Quentin Tarantino. Maybe maybe there's something in that. Maybe that's our next series is... (laughs) You are the decapitated one. (laughs) You are the decapitated one. A Quentin Tarantino... Commentary. <laughs> I don't know. That's just an idea. Probably not. But it's funny to think of them. So that drama. That see the, the thing that the point the way the reason it's we're we're bringing this up and the reason it's relevant to our conversation is that dr- dramatic setting and the dramat the drama between the characters is perfectly correlating between this movie, the Hateful Eight. And this scene in The Prisoner of Azkaban. And there's another one. There's a... There's the... There's there's another piece of literature, classic literature in... And it's not film, it's in drama, which is relevant to this. And that is Twelve Angry Men. Twelve Angry Men is a courtroom drama written by Reginald Rose. It's a very old, it's a, it's a classic. came out as a movie in 1957, a very long time ago now, long before you and I were born. And it's also been a stage play. It's been quite successful as a stage play. In fact, I think it was originally a stage play and then turned into a movie. And this is a funny thing between different mediums because there's certain things you can and can't do between film and stage plays. And one of them is, well, in a stage play, you can't change scenes very quickly because you have to you have your audience there and you have to change the set. You have to change your backdrops, change your furniture, change your props, change your costumes, and that takes time. And while modern theatre is very good at doing that very fast, years before, there was this thing that, well, you can only change scenes so many times. And that's partly why they have different acts, so that they can do that. And, well, there's a structural reason for acts as well. There's a passing of time and the weight of significance and the arc of 
the plot and all these sorts of things. But in 12 Angry Men, this is, this is iconic because it's only one scene. You're, you're in a room and you stay in that room and basically the entire story is just in that room. And the story goes that 12 men come in and they're on jury duty. And they've just heard all the evidence on this case, on this murder case. And they all decide to vote, just initially to see how everyone is, on what they're going to decide the verdict is. And they vote, and basically every single person votes for guilty, except for the twelfth man, the final man, this old man, And he doesn't say not guilty. He just says, now, wait a minute. We should just review the evidence. And from there, the whole story unravels. And there's a back and forth between characters. There are hidden stories behind them. There are hidden motives behind them. There are hidden conditionings and past emotional experiences that they have. And as they go through the evidence and they really review it, now, was this witness reliable? Does this piece of evidence add up with this piece of evidence? What other observations could we make about the defendants and the witness? And all these sorts of things. And it's a long process and there's a lot of drama. And in fact, one of the, one of the things is, well, the... Accused had said, I'm going to kill you right before the murder had taken place. And some people on the jury say, well, that's evidence enough. It's got to be evidence enough. And one of the men says, yes, that is evidence enough. But then there's some back and forward and there's some ins and outs and there's some arguments. And at a certain point, it becomes very heated And one of them calls out in the heat of the moment, I'm going to kill you. And it's at that moment that it's demonstrated, well, this is just a phrase. This is just something that some people say. doesn't mean they're going to go through with it. And after a long back and forth, each man, one by one, comes around to not guilty. Not guilty. And in the end, the verdict they give is not guilty. And that has the components of drama, which is characters that have conflicting desires. Some of them just want to get the verdict over with and to go home. Some of them have certain relationships with their own son, which is clouding their judgment. And they have their own revenge that they want to get back. And they can see that playing this out in a guilty way, giving this guilty verdict is going to play out some sense of revenge for them. And that's that's conflicting with some of the other characters that actually want the truth. And the bigger part, the bigger component is the truth comes out. 
what is the truth of the matter? We start with these characters and we end with, well, the truth comes out that he's not guilty. And the whole play is revolved around that structure, that process, that unfolding of the narrative. So when we look at Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, our central plot is there's this bad guy, Sirius Black, who's escaped from prison and he's coming to kill Harry. And there's a number of ways in which this comes to a head and which it's woven in and out. But basically... We end up in a room with a bunch of angry men. A bunch of conflicting characters. And that is this guy, Sirius Black, Harry Potter and his friends, and the teacher that Harry likes, Professor Lupin, that he'd actually taken quite a fond liking to. And then there's also Professor Snape. What on earth is he doing here? How strange that he could end up here. And then there's also, strangely enough, the pets. So Hermione has her pet cat and Ron has his pet rat, his pet mouse, Scabbers. And they are actually an important part of this, strangely enough. And also... The prop of the Miranda's map comes into this, which is how they figure out, well, well, how, I mean, we don't really need to go into the weavings of how this situation occurred, but there's, let's just say that there are, there are backstories. And this is, this is really the climax of the narrative. And the narrative, it, it weaves in and out in lots of ways. And the Miranda's map, well, someone sees who is who on there. And that leads people to this room, all these characters into this room. And it's quite a confusing passage. When you read it in the book, the effect is you get put into Harry's position because Harry turns up and there are these characters and these people that he knows, but they're acting differently. So for one thing, one person's trying to kill another person. One person's saying one person's another bad thing. And the, 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 the weight on it or the, the, what's at stake is who portrayed, who betrayed Harry's parents. So Harry's actually got skin in the game too and he's actually feeling something boiling up with him because when pa- Harry's parents was, were murdered, there was someone that told the murderer, told the Dark Lord Voldemort, where they were when they were in hiding. So there's, there's a betrayal, and betrayal really does bring a sense of vengeance. It really does stir a lot of anger. And Harry's feeling that. And he's put into this room, and there are these characters, and the passage, as you read it, there's an effect which you don't get in the movie. Because in the movie, well, let's talk about that in a minute, but 
basically the effect is there's this man and then there's another man and then he's angry and then he's angry and then he's trying to kill him and then he's saying, no, help me. And then he's no saying, stop him. And it's going back and forth like this. And as you read, you get very, you get very confused. It's like, no, wait, who, who's, is it him? No, is it him? No, is it, is it, is he angry at him or is it he or is him? And then there's more information about, no, he actually is living like this. And no, he is actually him. And you, you read along and you get confused. And right at the moment where you're saying, no, I'm confused, we realize that Harry's confused. And it's a very effective writing method. It's a very effective technique because we identify with Harry because we're confused and Harry's confused. And there's these conflicting characters with different ideas of what's true and the truth is trying to come out. Who's convincing who? Who's trying to sell the story of what actually happened? And this is just the same as what happens in 12 Angry Men. This is just the same as what happens in The Hateful Eight. And in the movie, well, the tricky thing about the movie is they don't have the time to go over that and to have the back and forth so much. And the other thing about a movie is when you see a character in a movie, there's still this sort of thing of, oh, is he a good guy or is he a bad guy? And the final result of this scene, this room bubbling and people arguing all over the place, is that actually Sirius Black is a good guy. Sirius Black is not out to kill Harry. That assumption has been reversed. And it turns out that Sirius Black is Harry's godfather. And if you get through that passage in the book, it's possible to still be confused. It's possible to still be like, now hang on a second, why why do I like Sirius Black? Why is he a good guy again? I don't fully understand. But in the movie, well, because it happens in such a short space of time, and because Sirius Black is just such a charming man with such a twinkle in his eye, we can see that he's a good man. We can see that he's a good guy. And he's just so nice to Harry. It's like, oh, how could you not be a good guy? And the other plot, the other side of the plot is the the Pettigrew character. And this is the pet that Ron has, the pet rat. Because it turns out the rat is not a rat. The rat is a, uh, what do you call a morph, a, a human that can morph into a an anamorph? I've forgotten the name. A human that can turn in and out of an animal. A morph, a Morpheus? I've forgotten the name. It'll come to me later when we've stopped having this conversation. I'll remember. But you, you know what I'm talking about. So back on topic. It's really thrown me off. I'm really trying to think about it now. Back on topic is you have the... You have the final result and you have the effect. And they're two different things. And it's quite complex. If you really delve into the end of The Prisoner of Azkaban, there is a lot of back and forth between Lupin and Sirius and Snape and 
They call him Padfoot. I think Padfoot is the is that the nickname of Pettigrew. See, I really I shouldn't I shouldn't try and un, untangle it. I should really just let's just stick with the final result and the dramatic effect. And the larger truth or the larger lesson to be learned is that in drama you have a condensed version of how humans react and interact with each other. In any scene, characters have something that they want. They have an arc to their story. And the truth wants to come out. And that's us. That's you and me. And you can say, well, the truth always comes out in the end. And there is something in that. But it's not always clear when our stories are at an ending, at the end of a chapter or so. And that's why it's really important. If you, if you notice there's drama, if there's drama around you or there's tension or there's something that's not working for you or there's a flashing between you and someone else, look at what you really want. Look at what's really trying to come out. And it can be quite unsettling to have that sort of relationship with people. And this includes not only people interacting face-to-face, but it also includes people interacting with each other across the internet. There's quite a lot of drama there. There's a lot of drama that goes on. And really the problem is that the truth is wanting to come out, but there's so much complexity that it can't. That's why there's so much confusion between people. So when we watch a drama, like a movie or a stage play or a book, and we see that there's an interacting happening in a certain way, just think that, well, this is how our interactions are also occurring because of the principles. What are the principles at play? There's a symbolic image I'd like to point out as well, which is the image of the animal within the human. And it's no mistake that the person who sold out someone is a rat. Typically, we call someone a rat when they squeal on someone, when they dob someone in or they tell information to someone. And Lupin, well, he's the werewolf. And we can say something about his character, which is that he's got something in him which is vicious. He's got something in him which is dangerous. But he's aware of it. 
He is contending with it. He's integrating it. And the theme of half animal, half human comes up again and again in the magical world. You have centaurs, which are half horse, half man. And it says something about what do you know about your inner animal? What do you know about your primal side? And each of these creatures or each of these ways in which half animal, half man comes up, whether it's in the case of a werewolf or a a Morpheus or a centaur, says something that, well, it says that there's a different relationship that people have to their inner animal. People have different amounts of awareness and different qualities also to their inner animal. Maybe their animal is something quite vicious. Maybe it's more on their dark side. Maybe on another side, well, the the spirit animal can be something quite profound and quite meaningful. The spirit animal can be your better side. So it's a metaphor that's very versatile and very complex. And it comes up in many different ways. And the story here is that, well, Lupin is a werewolf and his friends taught themselves how to turn into animals so that they could comfort him in his werewolf time. Because each moon, each month, there's a certain vicious stage of being a werewolf and he turns involuntarily into a werewolf. So his friends think, well, we'll turn into animals and then we'll be animals around you. And that way we'll support you. And you could say, well, is that friends just doing bad things just so they can be with other friends? Or is there something noble in that? Is there something very supportive in that? Now, the other half of this plot, or the other thing that comes up in this novel, is the time travel. So certain certain things happen, and certain people get arrested, and there's these complications with these these twelve these twelve angry men. Well, it's not twelve angry men, but let's just say it's twelve angry men in Harry Potter, and Harry tries to save the day with. Hermione, and that's done with this time travel pendant that they have, which Hermione has been using all term to get to multiple classes. So she's been using time travel to get to lots of classes and to do extra study. But now she uses it to save the day, and they also save the uh, flying creature, what is it, Buckbeak, the hippogriff, because he's been sentenced to death, and that side plot comes weaving in and the whole thing of Sirius being a good guy isn't common knowledge and so these dementors are still out there looking for him with this kill order on him so all the 
all the different side plots, all the things come to a climax and they do their time travel and Harry realises that, well, the person that saved the day is actually the person that warded off all the Dementors when they came to attack Sirius and himself. And he'd seen that before. He'd seen it happen. And yet now he's going through the whole time travel thing, trying to save Buckbeak, trying to interfere here or trying to go there, trying to save the day. And as he's doing it, he's thinking, who was that person? Who could it have been? And he gets it in him. He gets this idea that it was his father. Because it looked like his father. And he only saw him for a distance. He only saw him a little bit. And so he's going through this adventure. He's got this climax coming and he's doing all his saving the day runarounds thinking oh I'm going to see my father and what he does is he runs out to the spot where he'd seen his father ward off and cast that giant spell and he's waiting around he's saying where is he where is he he's got to be here this is exactly the same time I've timed it perfectly I'm in the right spot I'm in exactly the same spot. I'm exactly the same time. Where is he? And he sees the Dementors coming down and he's thinking, oh, he's got to save him. He's running late. And in that moment, there's a deep realization that happens, which is that Harry realizes that he is his father. He is the man that he saw. And at that time, he pulls out his wand and he casts the spell which wards off the evil Dementors. And it was such a powerful spell. It was the deepest spell that he's done. And it had to be because there was so much darkness there. It had to be his most powerful emission of the... What is it? The Protonus. I think it's called... Expecto Patronum, that's the spell, which is the white animal, the spirit animal. Again, well, that's the spirit animal theme coming up, and it's his better self going off to ward off the demons. And this comes back to what we've said before, which is that the spell has to come from your deepest self. It has to come from your being and in that moment where Harry was expecting to be his father and then realized that he was his father, well, he was expecting to meet his father, and then realizing that he is his father, and he is that powerful wizard that he'd seen, he was able to conjure up what was needed. And then later Dumbledore says, you found him meaning Harry's father, inside yourself. And that really did mean a lot to Harry. Because Harry never really knew his father. His father died when he was very young. And the lesson there is, well, if you want to know your family... You should learn to know yourself.
And that's the end of the story. That's the end of the prisoner of Azkaban. And Sirius Black is still seen as the bad guy because the altercation that occurred in the 12 Angry Men courtroom had a result which only the people there know about. It's not common knowledge. And that's something that carries over into the next book. And I don't know how I feel, I mean, more generally, I don't know how I feel about this book, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. It's probably sort of, I mean, I remember reading it and thinking, oh, it's a bit flat. And some people say it's their favorite one. So I guess it's just a matter of opinion, really, if I can offer up an opinion. I don't know if that degrades what we've talked about too much so far. But it seems a bit flat because the first three, we're now, we're now three books into the series. And we've sort of had the same thing happen over and over, which is, you know, Harry begins at the Dursleys and it's bad. And then he goes to school and it's good. And there's something bad that happens and he saves the day. And there's a reversal of assumptions, which is, well, the person who you thought was a bad guy is actually a good guy. And after three times, it's sort of like, oh, well, how many times are we going to go through this? There are seven novels, and there is this Lord Voldemort, evil guy, which, well, we all know how it's going to end. Basically, Harry's going to kill him. There's going to be some big showdown between him and Lord Voldemort. Are we going to have to wait seven novels to get there? We're going to have to wait four more novels until that happens. So it is a bit, I don't know, maybe maybe there's something to be said about how oh, each book had to be self-contained because it might have been a flop or she might not have got to write the other, other ones or anything like that. And now that, well, she knows that it's big time and she hits the big time, then she can write whatever she wants. And now she's got a movie contract, she can write anything I don't know, maybe not. You never can know how. I mean, I'm sure it was a very complex process, and we'll talk more about speculating the birth of the stories later on, but it just feels a bit flat, this one, this third book. I don't know, it feels a bit, you know, it's a bit... Because uh... really, the, the whole plot doesn't push much towards our central theme, our central plot which is this conflict between Harry and Lord Voldemort. And it's all edging on this one assumption that Sirius Black is a bad guy, which is all set on this piece of information that he sold Lillian James Potter out. He ratted on them when he didn't really rat on them. So it's a bit... Yeah, I don't know. I feel it's not quite strong enough to base a whole novel off. And we sort of feel like we're back at square one without having moved anywhere. Even though it was a colourful backflip. You can do you can do a backflip and land in the same spot. <laughs> you haven't moved anywhere if you do a backflip. <laughs> this is the narrative equivalent, maybe. But as we know... The next novel that is coming, well, all of that changes because the next, the next novel is Harry Potter 
and the Goblet of Fire. And that is possibly, possibly the greatest book in the whole series. So that's something to look forward to. And we know that J.K. Rowling delivers the goods. But that for us sums up The Prisoner of Azkaban. So if it's comfortable for you to do so, you know what I'm going to ask. So just sit down for a few minutes and sit quietly. And that's all I have to say for now.